Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. I'm your host, Greg Goins, coming at you with another great conversation this week. As my guest is Anyarupa Gangali, the founder and CEO of Prisms of Reality, an innovative next generation math, physics, engineering, and computer science curriculum that levels the playing field for all students. This new paradigm in math education allows students to learn through movement, experience, and meaningful discovery through virtual reality to create opportunities for personalized learning and solving real-world problems. Anyarupa has uh, just such an impressive background as a math educator, getting her start in the Boston Public Schools. She also has served as the Senior Director of Teaching and Learning for the New York City Department of Education. She holds two degrees from MIT in electrical engineering and also has a master's degree from Boston University in curriculum and teaching. Just an amazing background, amazing person, such a delight to talk with. And if there are any superintendents, principals, or math educators out there that want to learn more about Prisms of Reality and the great work that Anyarupa is doing, uh, hit me up. I'd love to connect and I'll get the information to her and uh, you can begin this great journey of reimagining your math education program. Before we get to this week's episode, I want to give a big shout out to my friends at Rocket PD. As you know by now, Rocket PD is the official sponsor of the Reimagined Schools podcast. So you want to check them out at rocketpd.com. So let's get to it. My conversation with Anyarupa Gangali begins right after this quick promo from the Education Podcast Network. I'm Rachel Johnson, co-host of the Educals Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hello again, everyone. We're back at it once again with another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Another great episode for you this week as we have the founder and CEO of Prisms of Learning. A big welcome to Anyarupa Gangali. How are you? I'm fantastic, Greg. How are you? Good. I'm so excited to uh, spend some time with you today. I'm a big fan of the things that you're doing. You have a tremendous background uh, in mathematics education a lot of great experience, and I want to dive into all of that, but uh, let's kind of begin with the good stuff. Whenever I went to your Twitter feed, uh, the name of this podcast is obviously Reimagine Schools, and my goal is to help people kind of rethink or reinvent uh, the way we think about what school should look like, and uh, I was so excited when I went to your Twitter feed. It says, reimagining the K-12 STEM learning experience to level the playing field for all students. That sounds like a pretty awesome mission statement. Yeah, I, I think it's what um, it was. It's what motivates us every day because, you know, I've been doing this work um, for the better part of my adult life and have seen so many solutions, interventions and initiatives come and go. Um, and the numbers remain static and many cases have gone down. And so I think that what, you know, we're really committed to is not just the inputs, but being maniacal about the outputs that we are delivering for districts, because this is not the first time, you know, folks have tried to reimagine or reinvent or rethink um, math teaching and learning. Uh, but you know, we've consistently fell short of our of, of of the outcomes that we deliver for kids. Yeah, and I certainly want to get into uh, this idea. I, I've always kind of said tongue in cheek that mathematics needs a better agent or a better PR firm because 
uh, math is just a very difficult subject area. A lot of people have difficulty with it. If you look at scores at the national level, even worldwide, globally, uh, America has always fallen short in the math area. Uh, I've always kind of, you know, believed that we teach the way we were taught. What was your math experience growing up? Did you always know that you were a math person? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So um, I actually didn't learn math in the K-12 American system. I learned it from my parents. Um, my my father was an engineer. My, my mom uh, was a maths major who then went back to school and became an engineer. So in my home, we were always thinking about um, how the applied mathematics enriched our lives and made our lives better. So I actually learned a lot of math through stories. My dad would, we'd kind of be walking and say like, Hey, how, how do you think that works? And it was through observing phenomena, through observing situations that we would then say, okay, well, like, you know, let, let's create quantitative models. And it was extremely story driven. And it was very kind of akin to once I got to school, how history was taught. History was also taught through stories. And I think math, it was, it's funny you say how math is one of the harder subjects. It's only because we jump kids to abstractions. Right. If you look at history and when you read books, we don't jump kids to abstractions. We start with storytelling. We start with ways to connect to their humanities, connect, connect to things that feel really human and personal to them. Um, and yet for mathematics, we the beginnings of it is, hey, look at this abstract symbolic notation, someone you have no idea who that person is created, memorize it and then do it over and over again. So it's less about math being hard and more about we've willfully made it abstract and completely divorced from kids' lives and then kind of wondered why they're not making deep connections and going on to contribute to these fields in a more visceral way. Yeah, and I think that's well said. And, and I'll kind of preface this question by saying I know a lot of math teachers that are really good that are doing great work in their classrooms each and every day. But if you think holistically, why is math instruction such an uphill climb and such a battle day in and day out in our public schools? I think that um, we, as a system, to your point, there, there are many valiant educators um, I've worked with and led many of them throughout the last you know, 15 years. And um, so, so kind of having said that, the, the problem is that our math, mod, our, our teaching and learning model doesn't take into account how we learn the discipline best. And that's what I really began to do as I kind of dug into my work at PRISMS is what are the predictors of success in the applied maths? And I began to find, oh, the number one indicator is your ability to think spatially and rotate 3D objects and maintain perspective. The second indicator is your ability to abstract. And when I say abstract, I mean your ability to think from, how do I go from this physical experience I just had in my world, in my life, and ascribe language and notation to it to create mathematical models. So the reason I kind of step back a bit is because we have not as a, as a society agreed upon what are those root predictors, what are the key skills that allow people to be successful in mathematics and then be responsive to that, say, okay, if we now know it's your ability to think spatially, it's your ability to abstract and it's, 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 it's kids not asking, asking the question, why am I going to, when am I ever going to need this? So really engaging them in real world problems that are real versus ones that they know someone like cooked up in a textbook, like kids are smart. They can tell when a problem is not authentic and it's, they go and Google it and say like, no one's really working on this problem at scale. This is, this, if I solve this problem, nothing in the universe is really going to kind of fundamentally be altered. And that 
that's a big message to our kids. So I think um, the direct answer to your question is why has math teaching and learning not seen the same sort of reform? And, I, and I'm going to break it down secondary math. I do think that K-5 math has gone through a lot of reform through, you know, play-based learning and the use of manipulatives, um, really going back to the foundational principles um, and how kids acquire those, those ideas. Um, it's kids have been left to starve middle school and up where it, it just becomes a laundry list of standards and procedures and skills and their role becomes to regurgitate. Whereas, as you know, our creatives and our most thoughtful students and children, that's not how they want to engage with their learning. Yeah, and, and I certainly, um, you know, when I think about math and think about my, about my own experience as a child growing up, um, you know, uh, first of all, a couple things I think have really hurt the math curriculum over a period of time. I think when you're young, uh, as you get started, you're just trying to learn basic skills. Whenever they put a stopwatch on me, that's when I had a problem. You know, I had to do my multiplication tables in so many minutes, in so many seconds or in a minute. I've never been to uh, the local mall trying to figure out what 25% off of my bill with someone standing next to me with a stopwatch. So I think that puts a lot of added pressure on kids at a young age. I think that's one problem. I don't think the whole common core concept has really helped math in terms of public perception of totally. math. So I'm so excited to see you bring kind of a fresh take and to reimagine it. I agree with you. And I think that I remember, um, I'll, I'll never forget, I forget where he uh, sat in the in the Singapore education system, but uh, I had gone to listen to him speak when I was in Boston, and he said something so simple and so profound. He said, every time I'm in the U.S., you all seem to be rewriting your standards because you've assumed like that's the problem, that standardization and uh, you know, how many standards in which you're like, that's the Achilles heel of the secondary STEM program. Um, whereas he's like, and he had said, you know, we, we, we take a slightly different approach and, and, and we don't need to kind of go into that, but I, I responding to your, your, your thought on, we spent 10 years rewriting standards. I do think that the common core brought some important problems to bear important problems to light, which was around this kind of overemphasis on proceduralism and how to, um, balance that out with conceptual understanding applications of the mathematics you're learning and procedure. So there were some very good ideas that the standards are trying to um, share, but execution was of course a different story. And I think that what we're trying to do at PRISMS is pretty simple. Students love, the students learn through problems that matter. They learn through first person problems, things that have happened to them. They learn experientially. They learn through their through their senses, through seeing, doing, moving, and touch. Um, and they have to be taught to abstract. We cannot just expect them to abstract. So once they've had that tactile experience, how do we help them ascribe notation and language so that mathematical model that they develop is derivative from a series of first-person experiences versus someone lecturing at them or telling them what to do? And, you know, we're going through this big push uh, nationwide, and it's really strong here in Kentucky with deeper learning, a lot of project-based learning principles, all these things are long overdue, and I'm, I'm so glad to see them implemented on a regular basis in the schoolhouse. But I think a lot of times there's this misconception that math doesn't fit into those, into those principles, and I, that's something that I, I constantly fight, and you probably do as well. Absolutely, and I think that, you know, problem-based learning 
going back to branding and and how things were rolled out, it took it, it it took the same hit that we were talking about before because we swung the pendulum. So problem-based learning that doesn't make sure that kids are also leaving with the the fluency objectives that they're responsible for. Like we can't forget that future opportunities are still tied to standardized assessments. And so as much as much as we may be progressive pedagogues, like we still have a moral duty to make sure that our students are able to surmount those, be it the SATs or the APs, to gain entry. Now we can have that conversation about we need to change assessments and but that's not what I'm doing the problem that I'm working on is instruction and teaching and and, and learning and so I think that problem-based learning when implemented such that we're going to drive inquiry um, of mathematical concepts through a problem that's really compelling and relevant but we're going to do it in such a way where we converge on the key ideas, vocabulary, conventions, and notation for our students to be a part of a community. And it's that second part that most PBL in math like failed, where they got like the really like the you know fun conversations, engagement, but uh, proficiency scores were not were not increasing. So I think that you got to do both, and I don't think it's either or. And I think that when you do both, when you effectively do both, is when you have a, a an effective instructional model. Well, I certainly want to dive into the nuts and bolts of, of PRISM and, and what, all the great work that you're doing across the country. But uh, before we go there, you know, if I go back to this idea of leveling the playing field for all students, thinking about this equity piece, why is it STEM-based careers seem to be uh, a place that a lot of females don't enter and a lot of folks of color don't enter? I think that, I mean, the, the, there, there are a few um, pieces to this. As I mentioned to you before, you know the, the top indicator of success in post-secondary STEM is your ability to, to reason spatially and, and to rotate objects in your mind. And we know that women are worse at that. Now, there are a myriad of reasons why that kind of transpires. I, I'm not a believer in um, a genetic reason. I believe a lot. I believe deeply in the socialization of, of different groups of people and, and how uh, one's brain forms over time as a result of that socialization. But having said that, there are key kind of differences right now in just the co- in development of core cognitive processes, and we have to close that gap if we're going to see anything, um, any real change. And the second is that, um, and we saw this with one of our first modules that we built. Uh, all of our modules have a virtual agent that is fr- that has a vocation. And so the first one we built, uh, pandemic, it, it was a black female epidemiologist, a scientist who is who is leading the session. And I cannot tell you the number of young black girls who had said, I've never seen a black female epidemiologist. I don't know what that sounds like. I don't know what that looks like. And you know this as an educator, models matter. Students look up to the adults in their life. And if if you don't see models of that in your community, it's very hard to aspire for that. And so one of the things that um, I've seen time and time again is students are not at the right time, picking those vocations. If you wanna be pre-med, if you wanna go into engineering, you can't decide that when you're 22, right? You need exposure early on. You have to be kind of working up to that moment. And so I think my answer is like, or my thought process is twofold rather, is that there's the just core competency and skill development on these key predictors that we have to be much more focused on the most highest highest leverage cognitive skills versus the things that we know are not necessarily correlated with success, like just increased test scores. And the second part is giving students, all students exposure 
to the myriad applications of mathematics and sciences across industries so that they're making decisions about what they want to contribute to much earlier and developing passions much earlier. Um, they, if, if they get exposed to a particular job when they're 24, you know, you, you might be like, oh, I, I wish I had known what this vocation was when I was 13. So I could have taken coding classes in high school and, you know, like prepared myself for that moment. But I just, I was robbed of that opportunity. Hey guys, Dr. Greg Goins here, and I hope you're enjoying this week's episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. We'll get right back to the conversation after this quick shout out from our sponsor, Rocket PD. There's one thing we can all agree on. The days of sit and get PD are over. That's why my friends at Rocket PD have assembled the best experts on the planet on the hottest topics on education with a mission to create the world's largest community of educators committed to helping teachers and staff succeed. So prepare for launch by going to rocketpd.com where you can connect your team with the most inspiring educators on the topics that matter. It's professional learning fueled by passion. Visit rocketpd.com to join the Rocket PD community and download your free ultimate guide to K-12 PD. So join Rocket PD today and get the help and support that you've been searching for. Well, you have such a wonderful background in math education and, you know, starting out as a high school math teacher in the Boston public school system. And you've worked in some pretty big jobs, you know, the New York City Department of Ed. So you have just an incredible background. At what point in your career did you kind of have that aha moment and say, you know what, this this prisms concept is something that I really want to get excited about. I think this can be meaningful math instruction moving forward. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you said about problem based learning. It's I, I, I fundamentally believe in task based instruction, creating the intellectual need to learn what you're what you're about to learn. And as I began to train cadres and cadres of teachers to implement this, I realized that that is a Herculean act for a teacher to have to, you know, create all those manipulatives, launch tasks, run around, um, you know, problem-based learning is not easy, especially in urban districts where you have, you know, 30, sometimes 35 to 37 kids in a class. And I began to think like, how much of this is actually going to be far better done with technology that can much more easily immerse students in first-person problem solving, use much better manipulatives and tactile tools. Teachers cutting out, creating tactile tools all night, non-starter. That, that, that is neither feasible nor reasonable given, given a teacher's schedule. So it really kind of came out from two things. One, a deep belief in task-based instruction and realizing that if we're going to train the entire army of US high school teachers to do this well, we need different tools. And secondly, is what I've now kind of been a bit of a broken record on is, oh my gosh, we have to teach spatial reasoning. They have to learn spatially. We have to teach them to abstract from physicality. And we know people learn experientially. So all these problem-based learning tools that are on paper pencil, where the methodology of a student is, you know, their movement is these small hand movements and everything is the written word or notation or at best, maybe a picture. Um, we have precluded many, many, many representations of thought and how people create memories of mathematical models. Like for example, rate of change, um, our students, uh, 
kind of uh, learn it by moving their hands at different pace, at different speeds to catch water droplets from this melting glacier. And then they get to create the graphs with their body. And we're like, oh, you know, a constant slope of two means I, my body went down two each time. But then four, I went down more. So they're deriving rhizoma run through movements, through color, through haptics. Those are far more visceral. And all of our kids, as they say it, like, miss, like once I saw it, I couldn't unsee it. And those like rich mental visualizations that something like VR affords, I could never bring to life using paper, pencil, problem-based methodologies. So I would say those are the two big um, impetuses for me. One is we got to get every teacher doing this. And for to do that, we can't make it, we, it can't be such a hard thing to do. They need far better tools to support them. And we have to be prioritizing the right pedagogical principles, the, the ones that I named. And, you know, I feel like every time I turn on the TV, especially if it's something related to technology, I, I'm always going to hear something or see something about VR, virtual reality. And maybe this is an overgeneralization, but in my opinion, at least from what I see and the people I've talked to, I think there are two really big myths about VR. Number one is it's not affordable. People think that it's just too expensive. And number two, that it's all gameplay and there's no way that you're going to be able to uh, embed relevant content uh, for content knowledge purposes within a VR system. So, I mean, this is your opportunity to dispel, shoot both those out of the water if you could. Absolutely. So I'm going to start with the second one. I think that um, whenever you have a new medium, Greg, a, developers of that medium try to emulate the, the, the old medium. So if you looked at the first films, they looked like plays because what did people know how to do? They knew how to basically replicate the plays as a motion picture. Um, similarly, the first VR modules basically just tried to emulate, you know, like what students would do in the real world, but just make lap simulations. Well, it kind of missed the point around, this is a brand new medium with all these affordances of movement and visualizations and embodiment and empathy. And so now we've begun to scratch the surface on far better design of the medium, which is allowing us to build far more efficacious curriculum. So, you know, a medium just needs to evolve and grow. So that, that, that's kind of the first point on the second uh, issue you brought up. And the, and the only other thing I would say is that we aren't, we didn't build for VR to build on VR. We built on VR to scale a pedagogy. That's very important. If I could have scaled this pedagogy using another medium, I would have done it. But my thesis is not that people learn by sitting static in front of a black, black rectangle. That is not my thesis. My thesis is embodiment and movement, being a first person actor in your life. And that, for that, you need immersive VR. To the question of cost, um, you know, a VR headset today, uh, a, a MetaQuest 2 is $400 um, per device. Now, if you look at, I don't know when, uh, it, it seemed, I know that you, you had a very illustrious career in teaching, when I was teaching, I remember the days of the laptop cart. And we used to have me and my two or three other teachers, we'd have one cart and we would share, we had a computer lab. So that's where we're at with VR days right now. But as you know, public institutions now, you know, give one-to-one -one devices because they realize the value, the utility and the comprehensiveness that, 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 these, devices, um, that these devices offer. Similarly, as we build more content and really um, prove what the value of VR in the classroom is going to be. And we build out content for all disciplines, all curricula, all grade levels. We're going to begin to see that one-to-one -one adoption, especially as cost comes down. But even with the $400 per device, 
um, that's pretty cheap. And given it's a sharing model, VR is not for every day. It's one class set for an entire school where you have three, 400 kids sharing one class set of devices because it's so visceral. Remember, Greg, like a lot of my kids, like they did one VR module in the year in math. And they're like, it totally changed my perception. And so you, you don't need to do it all the time. It's, it's, it's these really visceral memories for key um, objectives in a, in a curriculum. Yeah, and I think that's another thing that uh, very well said, very well explained. Uh, so if I'm a, maybe I'm a first year principal or a first year math teacher, and I'm listening to this episode, and I'm really interested, and I want to learn more, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking I'm going to have 25 high school kids all wearing VR gear, and they're going to be doing whatever it is the curriculum is based around. But the fact that you're talking about it's uh, pedagogical, this is a different way of approaching the math concept, I think is very valuable. Exactly. And, and when teachers sign on, they never say we're signing on to VR. They're saying we're, we're signing on to highly engaging, problem-driven learning where students get to derive the mathematical models from their own life. And that's the pedagogy that, 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 we're, that, that we're really out there spreading and sharing what teachers and mass are signing on to. Because teachers have had a lot of difficulty. They've been on the front line trying to make the case for math class forever, like cartwheels and videos and engineers use it and this. And I feel so bad for math teachers because they're like, again, our first line of defense. And now when they use our tools, like we uh, look at applications across industries, right? So we have um, middle school math, algebra one, geometry and algebra two. So they look at all types of applications, like building new elementary, sustainable elementary schools in India, um, from building low-cost yurts in Central Asia to the affordable housing crisis in California to um, how Miami is raising their buildings for meters right now because of rising sea levels. And we all know kind of what's been happening with some of the, the recent flooding. And so they feel like they get to solve all these important problems in our own country, as well as those outside of our country. And it makes them feel powerful, Greg. A lot of our, our kids say like, we feel like we kind of are bystanders. We see like adults fighting or whatever, whatever, you know, the, the models that we've given our children. And, um, and, and I, and I'm an engineer by trade. I fundamentally, like, I want to build a generation of builders. Like that's what I care about. And I think that mathematical modeling is, is the most foundational framework for building and building enduring systems. And so we want our kids to complete these modules and feel really powerful. And that's what teachers are seeing. Ultimately, that's why teachers got into this. I don't know. I know very few teachers that got into this work for the wrong reasons. And so when teachers get their hands on something like this, that empowers students while being standards aligned, while making sure, because I'm not saying let's go do this fun after school activity. I've aligned everything to core topics, which allows us to get to every kid versus, you know, technology programs or CS um, uh, initiatives that kind of fall outside the curriculum. I want to first get the curriculum that we do have right before we further expand it. And, you know, I think empowerment for both the teacher and the student is so important, especially as you said, you know, teachers have been beat up now for the last couple of years. And, you know, obviously they're in the trenches doing the best that they can. Uh, you know, before coming into higher education uh, several years ago, I was a school district superintendent for 15 years. And I can't tell you how many math people and science people I had to try to hire. And there just aren't many good math folks out there, especially the higher you go in the grade level at the high school level. There's one district here in Kentucky this last year. They had zero applications, you know, a couple of weeks before school started. And they finally did a $10,000 signing bonus just to get applications. So I think 
again, I'm so excited about this way of reimagining math instruction. What do we have to do to get more people in the classroom, quality math teachers in the classroom, in your opinion? Yeah, I think the number of teachers, so one of our first like large deployments were in the, in the state of Ohio. And I remember um, some of the leaders are telling me saying that I had uh, teachers that were going to retire this year. Uh, they were tired, they were burnt out and PRISMs gave them, they're now staying because PRISMs gave them a reason to remain in the public education system. They felt like their skills were growing. They felt like they were being expanded as a professional. They felt like we were investing in them. They were getting these really high quality tools. And so I think that like, one of the things that people want to know before they get in is, am I going to be able to grow? Everyone wants to grow in their career. And, you know, to elevate a profession, we have to continue to really invest in the trainings and the tools that we put in the hands of our teachers to, to, to feel like they, they're going to be inspired to come to work every day versus the, drud the drudgery that often public education becomes, where they're just supposed to be this like conduit for like test scores versus like the keeper of innovation and, and creativity. Um, while being, you know, aligned to, to, to again, the, 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 the standards and benchmarks that kids are responsible for. So, I mean, you're really building this next generation, high school, math, physics, engineering, and computer science curriculum. It's not just math. This is, no. there are other elements that can be incorporated. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So all of our modules, like if people, people often say, you know, kids will say like, I didn't even realize I did math because they're solving a problem. And that problem, sometimes it's in, you know, sustainability. Sometimes it's for the growth rate of a virus. Sometimes it's, um, you know, building a myriad of, of new architectural uh, buildings. Um, our physics mo modules are very focused on technology. So for example, to learn Faraday's law, they're looking at tributaries across the Midwest uh, for how to harness hydropower to store solar energy and make that more efficient. So they're getting a chance to look at so many applications across technology, the hard sciences, deep tech. Um, and what that begins to do is again, like break down the walls between math class and science class and civics and because it's problem solving. And so we have a lot of our science teachers actually using some of our math modules we have our math, our math teacher saying, oh my God, I can't wait for that to, for the physics library to come out. My algebra teachers are like, that's basically, it's all the math of algebra, but in the context of these scientific phenomena that can be harnessed to build technologies. And so um, right now we have, as I mentioned, we have grades seven to 11 math um, this fall. Next summer, we're, we're releasing seven to 11 um, biology, physics, and chemistry. And then we're going to keep building from there. We're going to be building out AP Calc, AB, BC, multivariable to really push into upper division math because that's when the applications get really, really fun. Yeah, and that was kind of my next question. Uh, we've talked mostly about K-12 education, but I would think people in higher ed are really kind of chomping at the bit to, to be a part of something like this. Have you had conversations with some of those folks? We've had a lot of outreach from um, community colleges as well as four-year universities that have, that have a huge issue with their um, college algebra program. So as you know, a lot of students go in and they, they get stuck in a rut of remedial algebra. And you know, it's like their fourth hit of feeling unsuccessful. And it's usually the end of the road for many folks um, in math. And so we are beginning to uh, do, we, we're I think releasing about five pilots in universities this fall of the college algebra program. Um, but then as we build out calculus and the upper division math and sciences, I think we're going to be um, really primed to set up more proof of concepts at the university level. 
Well, it's been a great conversation. I'm such a big fan of your work, and I'm so delighted that you took some time to talk with me. I kind of saved the last question for last, uh, maybe kind of the toughest question to answer. But in your opinion, what do we need to do to get kids uh, across the country more excited about math concepts? Just to, to double stamp a few of the things that we talked about, I think that if they're having to proactively ask us why they're learning this, we failed. Our, our job is to create motivation and to, and to inspire them to want to learn the thing. And you're going to want to learn the thing if you can solve a meaningful problem in your life or that of your community or that, or, or that of your country or world. And so really solving the engagement problem, not by bells and whistles and colors and gamified tools. People always ask me, oh, you, 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 you're, you're a game. I say, we're not a game. If you look at our modules, we're mission driven. We're not game driven. But, you know, we don't reduce our kids to addiction loops and making them want to click on the same thing over and over again. So I would say that's kind of the number one thing. And um, the second the second piece of it is really making sure that our teachers are equipped with better tools. And so people often ask me, oh, you know, you're doing this for for students. I said, I, I am. But my real end users are teachers. They've been completely kind of beat down by our system over the past few decades, um, internalizing deficits that were never their own. And there were always deficits of the system with, you know, that we've set up for them. And so I think that those are our two kind of biggest levers. And I'm excited that PRISMS is a small part of that solution. Well, that was a great answer. So well done. And how can people get a hold of you and find out more if they want to get involved? Great. So you can always go to our website, uh, www.prismsvr.com. Uh, you know, give us a, give us a holler through our, through our form. Um, and we are, you know, actively looking for school districts that are looking to really transform uh, engagement and proficiency at scale across our districts. So we'd be happy to, to work with school districts. And then we're also going to be releasing to families, uh, parents, tutors, and teachers at home um, in Q1 of next year. So definitely something to, something to look out for. Well, thanks for your time and have a great school year. Thank you so much, Greg. So that's a wrap on this episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating and leave a comment wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. As friends of the podcast, I hope you can give me a follow on Twitter at Dr. Greg Goins, where you can learn more about my work as a partnership ambassador with the Modern Classrooms Project and also about my work with Brave Ed, where innovative school districts across the country are leading change through a benefits-based accountability system that allows school communities to redefine student success. So until next time, folks, thanks for listening and keep fighting for change in your schools.